From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees make about 23% less than private sector workers, according to new data from the Federal Salary Council. That number is shrinking, though. The pay disparity was almost 32% in 2018 and almost 27% in 2019. GovExec reports the council gets the disparity data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The Defense Department's cybersecurity maturity model certification requirements are coming to civilian contracts. Keith Nakasone of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration says a clause of the new STARS-3 request for proposals says GSA could require CMMC compliance. FCW reports the Pentagon's requirements for the model and the agency's standing as its biggest partner in GWACs and schedules is one reason for the inclusion. The Space Force's first official field command is up and running. Space Operations Command is the first of three commands the force will establish. Defense News reports the force will stand up Space Systems Command and Space Training and Readiness Command will be the others. General Stephen Whitting will command Space Operations Command. The Space Force has its first recruits now. The Vice Chief of Space Operations, General D.T. Thompson, swore in the first four recruits Tuesday at Fort Meade. Those recruits and the other personnel assigned to the force will execute on the force's agenda. Jamie Morin is Vice President of Defense Systems Operations and Executive Director of the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at the Aerospace Corporation, a former Pentagon official. Jamie, welcome. It's good to see you. You and your colleagues are working on a broader space agenda. What does that agenda include, Jamie? Well, that's right, Francis. We've been working on a series of reports that we're calling part of Space Agenda 2021. And it's really to lay out and crystallize the critical issues and decisions facing senior decision makers in the coming year and the next presidential term. We're, we're focused on, I would say, four big topic areas. Um, one is managing the growth in space traffic as so many new and exciting uh, uh, businesses are setting up in low earth orbit in particular. Second is uh, the new challenges in national security space. Third is the direction for uh, space exploration and down the road, potentially economic development, betterment of uh, humanity through uh, space activity. And then the fourth broad category is what we call shaping the future. And that's uh, the big thing about the challenges that are out there. Fundamentally, we come at these from our um, our mandate as part of a organization that runs a federally funded research and development center, right? So working on behalf of the government uh, without conflicts of interest. And we, we see three big things happening in space. We see a uh, increasing democratization of space with multiple new players on the scene, you know, not just the US and the Soviet Union, like in the Cold War, more, many more countries, many more companies, it's not just a matter of writing a policy or making a decree and it will be so. We've got to lead by example and persuasion. Uh, we also see dramatic changes in the economics of space, enabling new business models, opening the door to entirely new uh, pursuits. And 
the policy environment is changing as well. You know, it's uh, become more permissive, but it's still an environment where uh, nations, governments are responsible for the actions of their uh, private actors in space and have to create a policy framework in which that can happen. And given the, the, the policy framework that you're outlining there, what does that look like from a strategic perspective when the United States is thinking about not only its public sector goals, but its private sector goals and those of its allies. Obviously, the, there are some actors in space that are not our allies and whose interests are contrary to ours. What does formulating a strategy look like in that context, Jamie? So it's a, it's a terrific question. And one of the real challenges in space is that there is a constant back and forth between uh, cooperation and competition. So there's a bunch of things that the U.S., Russia, China, U.S. allies around the world, there's decisions that they could all take that would grow the pie globally, and there's decisions we could take that would shrink the pie globally. All the, At the same time, we're competing for you know our slice of the activity, if you will, and striking the balance between that competition and the activities that grow or at least prevent the shrinkage of the pie is key. The, the classic example of this is orbital debris uh, creating activity, right? The more space junk we have on orbit, the harder it is for everyone to operate. It imposes, if you will, a tax on every uh, space operator to manage their constellation in a way that minimizes their risk from the debris on orbit. But they may make short-term decisions that increase the risk that they'll create debris for others. And so uh, there's this element of both competition and cooperation in the space environment because it's truly global, right? No one controls it or owns it. It's a, it's a shared domain where we operate interspersed with one another. We have about a little bit less than two minutes left, and we have a link to your strategy that we'll put on the screen here in just a moment, Jamie. But one of the chapters struck me. A lot of these chapters seem uh, to be uh, natural fits, defense-based partnerships, emerging issues, and new space services, and so on. There's one chapter that struck me as interesting, the Arctic, space-based solutions to infrastructure and national security needs. What is it about the Arctic that fits into a space strategy or even the concept of a space strategy, Jamie? So it, the Arctic is clearly one of the areas where uh, global competition is rising. It's also an area where terrestrial ground-based infrastructure is pretty scarce. You know, if you ask anybody that lives in Alaska or uh, certainly Siberia, they'll, they'll report, you know, it's not so easy to uh, get things that people take for granted elsewhere. Uh, space has an important role to play there. But actually, many of the space capabilities that are out there um, that people rely on in the rest of the world don't actually function all that well in the extreme northern latitudes. Um, think about it this way. If, you're a, if you've got a satellite at uh, geosynchronous orbit in line with the equator, there's actually a fair bit of Earth between you on the ground in the far north or the far south and that satellite. And you're, it's not so easy to pick it up. So a lot of communications technology doesn't work that well. Uh, even GPS doesn't provide the same level of capability because of how that constellation is configured in orbit. So we're looking at ways that uh, we can be creative to improve the quality of space-based services, including very importantly, environmental monitoring in the Arctic um, 
in part because the other ways that we have typically moved information, communicated, and uh, gathered data are more difficult to do in a remote and you know often hostile area like uh, parts of the Arctic. Jamie Morin, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thank you, Francis. Always a pleasure. Up next, recruiting pilots to fly for the Air Force and keeping them in the cockpit. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pilot retention problem and what the Air Force can do about it. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Today's Air Force has about 2,100 empty pilot seats. The force has struggled to keep people in the cockpit for years. The Center for Strategic and International Studies shows aviation bonuses could be one key to getting pilots to stay in their jobs longer. Tobias Switzer is a military fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies writing about this issue. He's an active duty officer in the Air Force. His views are his own and not those of the Defense Department or the Air Force. Tobias, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Uh, the former vice chief of the Air Force, General Wilson, told uh, this program in 2017 about this problem. It's been going on longer than that. What has happened between 2017 and today? Well, I Great question. First, Francis, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, things have only gotten worse since 2017. As you mentioned, the Air Force started this year out short, 2,100 pilots, 1,300 of them are fighter pilots. Now, we're, the Air Force is seeing a, uh, you know, a, a bounce and uptick in pilot retention due to the COVID-19 and pandemic and the, the airlines have taken a hit. But on the training side, the Air Force started out the fiscal year 2020 hoping to train 1,480 new pilots, but because of COVID-19 and because of the pandemic and other factors, was only able to train 1,200. So um, it's not clear exactly the effect, but that's where we stand right now, Francis. You uh, write in your work that there are three possibilities here, three recommendations to help keep these pilots in their seats. And one of the I think the, the things that caught my attention early on in your work is they don't require spending any more money than the Air Force is spending now, maybe just rearranging the time. So let's look at each of these in turn, Tobias. The first is empowering squadron commanders in the AVB process. Tell me what the AVB process is and what it looks like today. Sure. So the AVB is Aviation Bonus. It's a congressionally authorized program by which the military services can offer its aviators um, financial incentives to stay in for longer military careers. Um, the, the Air Force currently offers it um, through an impersonal method, through a, a robo email, mass email to all eligible pilots, uh, putting the onus on them to fill out all the paperwork and take all the necessary steps uh, to fill out the contract. That, that's a very impersonal way to ask for a long-term commitment from somebody. My recommendation is we need to center the aviation bonus process and the offer around the squadron commander and the pilot's relationship. Squadron commanders know their pilots and their families the best, and they're the ones who should be empowered to sit down, have a one-on-one -on -one intimate conversation with each and every pilot, and talk about the implications for their families and their future in the Air Force. The second recommendation that you make is offering the contract earlier, and you write, the amount of money offered in a retention contract matters a lot, but so does the offer's timing. 
What does that look like in the life of a pilot and whether he or she decides that they're going to re-up? Sure. So uh, because of, we follow the uh, National Defense Authorization Act legislation, Congress currently restricts the services from offering the aviation service bonuses until pilots are at the end, within a year of the end of their commitments. Well, by that time, most pilots and their families have made decisions about whether they're going to stay or go already. And now the Air Force has to get its aviation bonus on the table and compete with Delta, United, American Airlines, and other opportunities. My recommendation is to move that offer timing up to the much earlier point in the pilot's career, uh, pay them the bonus when they make less money, and it might have more impact and uh, be more beneficial to them. And then the Congress and the taxpayers get paid back in years of service afterwards. The third recommendation that you're making is creating an assignment for service market at pilot training. And you make an observation here that I did not know before. The type of aircraft pilots fly initially after training sets a course for their careers that's challenging to alter later. Chance, however, plays a significant role in selecting that course. What can be done to alter that chance, uh, Tobias? That strikes me as uh, or, or something random that would make somebody decide, this isn't what I got in here for. Sure, when, uh, when Air Force student pilots sign up to go to pilot training, generally speaking, they don't know what they're gonna fly or where they're gonna fly. But every single one of us has you know, strong desires about our vision for ourselves in the Air Force. So I think if the Air Force can find a way to uh, allow pilots to offer greater years of commitments, maybe two, three, five years of service in exchange for a, a guarantee of their um, aircraft or their base location, um, that might strengthen the value proposition for pilots to want to stay in longer and make longer commitments to the Air Force. Is there something, uh, just quickly, is there something that can be done to make that, that path alteration in, later in a pilot's career easier too? Right. Um, I mean, everything's possible. It's just more challenging. So every, you know, every F-16 pilot that decides midway through their career that they actually want to go fly C-17s and do something different. I mean, in theory, that's possible, but that's, um, that's uh, a pilot has to get retrained, and that's a lot of resources and time to do that. And the F-16 community is going to lose a future leader that they're going to need. And so it just becomes more challenging to offer career flexibility later on in a pilot's career. But if we can start them out on the right path and the path they really want to be on, uh, I believe that it's going to increase their satisfaction and, and make them want to own their careers and stay in longer. To, uh, Tobias, we have about 30 seconds left. Which of your recommendations does Congress have to do something about and which can the Air Force implement on its own? Right. So the, the first and third one, the Air Force can implement on its own. It has its own power. The second one, changing the time of the aviation bonus will require Congress to act um, and change some of the language in the uh, NDAA. But I think it's a simple fix, and I think it will uh, help all the services, not just the Air Force, but the Navy and the Marine Corps as well. Tobias Switzer, writing for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. His views are his own. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Up next, a 10-year window on the Pentagon's new strategy for using and keeping data straight ahead on Government Matters. Top priorities for the department and what it'll take to get them accomplished. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. The Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Hyten, says it will take 10 years for the Defense Department to manage its data effectively. The department's new data strategy is the roadmap to get to that destination. Tara Murphy-Doherty is Chief Executive Officer of Govini. She and Bob Work are writing about data in the department in War on the Rocks. Tara, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's your takeaway from this new data strategy that the department has released? Thanks, Francis. Overall, I think they have laid out an excellent roadmap. You know, Secretary Work and I laid out our own principles that we thought the department really needed to focus on as it gets a handle on data and the data management challenges it faces. And we saw a lot of that appear in the data strategy overall. So I would give it an excellent grade. What do you think are the gaps between what you and Bob recommended in War on the Rocks back the beginning of October and what the Pentagon actually produced? So there are two that jump to mind for me immediately. And the first is really leveraging external data. The data strategy does a very good job, like I said, of highlighting the fundamental principles, the recommendations that will need to be adopted by DOD in order to better leverage data in the way that it is going to need to, to reverse the eroding military advantage that we have previously enjoyed, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China. What it doesn't do is look outwardly very much. And that's a mistake, I believe. There is a tremendous ability of external data sources and external technologies that the department can use to leapfrog from a, um, a technological or development perspective. And if we're going to make progress on a faster timeline than a decade, uh, that is going to, that's going to be really critical. And that's where I wanted to go next. Um, you and Bob write that that 10-year gap should disturb U.S. policymakers and mobilize them to act. What compresses that 10-year timeline? Or is that not compressible? And this is just a function of the fact that it took the Pentagon longer than it should have to get here. It's definitely compressible. And I wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but I would bet money that Dave Spirk, the chief data officer of the Department of Defense, would agree with me. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really excited to see him in this role. He brings phenomenal expertise. He had a number of accomplishments at uh, U.S. Special Operations Command. And I think that we will see him do a few things to really uh, advance the department and, and shrink that timeline. One is going to be working with the private sector in a really meaningful way and bringing in the right kind of private sector partners uh, in order to, to make the kind of progress that we need. Another is I think he's determined to get a handle on the federated approaches to data that are uh, active in, in DOD. And part of that could be um, could risk actually slowing progress down if DOD has to thinks about this sequentially and feels the need to map the universe before it, it takes action. I don't think he's going to do that. I think he's going to uh, endeavor to understand the universe, to create that mapping, to inform progress and move in parallel. One of the recommendations that you and Bob wanted to see is eliminating bureaucratic data ownership. The data strategy addresses the, the data exchange between branches uh, among all of the forces. Is that what you're referring to there or is there something else that you're getting at? That's exactly what we're referring to. In my experience working in national security and indeed my experience working in the Pentagon, data is power. And 
that combined with a security posture has created an environment and a culture that does not foster uh, transparency or sharing. And yet the department talks a lot about leveraging private sector best practices, about emulating emerging technology companies that are doing phenomenal things in the American economy. One of the principles of those companies is transparency and sharing information. It's a huge part of what allows you to move fast. I thought this is exactly a, a great example of an area where the strategy did a really good job of addressing the people aspect of this challenge and the cultural one as well. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Tara. What incentivizes that though, rather than just the department saying, this is our policy and this is what you should do, because we've seen that many times over the years in the Pentagon, it's not incentivized, so even though it's encouraged, it doesn't happen. Great point. People often feel like if I share my data, you're gonna come for my money. And if we can establish the right metrics that are around performance and capability, not just capacity or a top line figure, that's what will truly change behavior, just as you suggest. Tara Murphy-Doherty, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.